Uh, Our reading is from Ephesians 6, 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Phil. I'm the associate minister here. It would be lovely to meet you afterwards if, uh, um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you know the best way to live a full, rich, flourishing, purposeful, meaningful life in this world. And so we pray that we would delight to learn from you this evening, that we might live for you this week. Amen. Children and parents, slaves and masters. Now, I think I can see three children here, a few more parents. As for slaves, well, actually, shockingly, um, the wonderful team at Tamar do sometimes bring people who've been trafficked uh, to this church who they're helping. Slave masters, I really hope I can't see any here tonight. Uh, But what about the rest of us? I mean, how much relevance does this passage have to life for the majority of us? Actually, the truth be told, this passage is of enormous relevance to how you spend most of your waking hours in family and at work. This is the Bible at its most practical and most helpful, and I think we're going to find it enormously useful to us tonight as we look at it together. Now, as we've seen, uh, God's new life for those who trust in Jesus is a life full of the Holy Spirit. And one of the the hallmarks of that we saw in chapter 5, verse 21, is to submit to one another. To submit to one another. Because the gospel is revolution, not anarchy. We looked at that. Gospel is revolution, not anarchy. And God has established certain structures in society to enable us as his image bearers to flourish. He himself is a God who is ordered his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a beautiful structure, and we flourish best in structure. And so he's given us some structures. And he focuses um, in in this section at the end of Ephesians, Paul focuses on wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. uh, You'll see there's what you call a a fairly uh, brief outline. My attempt to save money, I didn't waste any ink on the outline for you. Um, There... But we're, we're going to look at children and parents and slaves and masters, very simply. We'll spend a little bit less time in children and parents because we looked in depth at the fifth commandment relatively recently. But we'll just try and focus in on what unique things Ephesians 5 has to tell us. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 6. So Ephesians 6 verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. As children, obey. 
Now that's a much stronger word than submit, which we saw last week in the marriage relationship. Okay, but when you stop being a child and get to stop obeying, quite an important question. Well, in different cultures, it'll look different. And it's not solely about biological age, it's also about life stage. So a 19-year-old who's married, has a job, and lives away from home, is in many senses less of a child than a 28-year-old who lives at home and pays no rent. So it, it is complicated. But as adults, the, the, the obedience part drops away. Now, the fifth commandment is broader than just obey. It says, honor your father and mother. And that obligation to your parents as father and mother, that carries on through life. Three C's just to help you uh, work out what you do in this life stage that most of us here are in. Three C's, consult, communicate, care. Consult, communicate, care. It starts as when you're a young adult, you're no longer a child, you consult. Your parents know you better than you know yourself. And our parents are... They generally turn out to be a whole lot wiser than we ever imagined when we were children. So consult them, involve them with, in your decisions. It's right, and life goes better, generally, when you consult your parents as a young adult. As you grow older, and especially once you marry, that changes. You're no longer required to consult parents. But the, the duty, I think, in that stage of life is to communicate, to, to call them, and not only when they've called you, to be involved with them and let them be involved in your life. Consult, communicate, and later on, we'll need to care for our parents. And we ought to expect that to be inconvenient and costly in time and money. But it is a privilege. And it is part of Ephesians 6, our worshipful obedience to God as we obey him. Now, the other thing you'll see is that there is a rationale provided in verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Why should I? It's the, I think it's probably the second phrase a child learns after, no. Uh, why should I? It comes pretty soon afterwards. Why? Well, life goes better if you do. Originally, when God gave the command in Exodus 20, it said, in the land the Lord your God will give you. But here he changes it from the promised land to the whole earth. In other words, he's saying, look, God's pattern for family life isn't some weird thing that's just for Christians. No, this is God's creation pattern. At the heart of any healthy society is a healthy attitude to family life. That's God's point here. Now, we've lost confidence here as a culture, but children do need structure. I've been uh, reading a, a whole heap of books about caring for children from difficult backgrounds recently. And it's very interesting that the experts write time and time again that expect children to push boundaries, especially those who've come from traumatic backgrounds. But one of the main reasons they push the boundaries is because they have a desperate, deep need to find that there are boundaries that there is safety around them. One of the reasons that they, um, they test parental authority relentlessly is because they have a desperately deep need to find that there is authority that loves them and is strong enough to resist them, that they can rely on to care for them. Children really do need this structure. God knows what he's talking about. And the experts are starting to realize that more and more. Now, the fifth commandment only focuses on the duty of children, but Paul now in Ephesians turns to look at the correlative duty of parents. And there are endless books on the duties and the 
uh, and how to be good parents, from Dr. Spock to Gina Ford. Everybody's got their favorite who they think has nailed it and will enable them to have uh, the children that they really want. But Paul focuses on just two things here. It's a very, very brief bit of parental advice. One's negative and one's positive. Do you see what he says? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Negatively, don't exasperate your children. Now, exasperate comes from the word to make angry, saying don't provoke your children to anger and resentment. Okay, well, what kind of things provoke children to anger and resentment? Now, I doubt we have to brainstorm very hard. I think most of us have experienced growing up some degree of anger and exasperation with our parents, no matter how good our parents were. We all know the things that exasperate, favoritism, where one child is just treated differently, unfairly from the others. Inattention, the parent glued to the screen, completely inattentive, dad, dad, look at this, dad, dad, look at me. It's terrible when you see it. Harshness, that sort of runs down the reserves of patience and understanding at work, so, well, at home, the family just gets irritability unreliability I promise I'll be there in time to read your story tonight yeah sorry something came up and of course there's that particularly Christian way of provoking anger and exasperation amongst children of hypocrisy the wonderful family at church and the angry shouty family at home don't exasperate your children well you may think very important for those here with children but rather irrelevant to me but let me warn you, my observation of friends is that having children changes your circumstances, not your character. So you need to sort these attitudes out now. You won't magically become patient and reliable and attentive. Why? What happened to you? We had a baby and it just kind of magically happened. <laughs> Seek to fight the sort of sins that might provoke anger in the child before you damage the one you so much want to do the best for. Negatively, don't exasperate. Positively, bring them up in the instruction and train, the training and instructions of the Lord. Now, the fundamental, the greatest duty of any parent is to raise children to trust and to obey Jesus Christ. Now, that is not surprising. Jesus' final words, his great commission to all his people, whether parents or not, was to make disciples. Baptizing, that is, uh, teaching them to trust in Jesus for salvation and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. Now, that has to shape parenting, Christian parenting. There may be something, I think there is, in Paul's choice of words. Training is a word that relates to discipline and behavior. And instruction has to do with the mind and learning how to think. And so I think he's, he's giving just this broad command that says, Christian parenting involves addressing behavior and beliefs, motivations as well as actions. It's not just the hands and the feet and the mouth that he wants. It's the heart, too, and the mind teaching them how to think Christianly and how to behave as one who's been saved by Jesus. Now, the last thing I want to, to notice before we move on is the easiest to miss of all, which is who is instructed here. Children should obey parents, so you expect it to read, parents do not exasperate your children, but it doesn't. It reads fathers. That's interesting. 
Most of us, uh, our conception of this time is that this is a pretty patriarchal age. That's the way we, we tend to pejoratively describe the first century. And uh, most understanding is that the primary care for children was entrusted to, to the wives. So why is it the father's addressed? It is an outworking of the principle we saw last week. Husbands are head of the marriage. Husbands, fathers, carry responsibility in the home, in other words. So men here, should God entrust you with a family, you are responsible for the spiritual instruction. Even if you end up at work far more than your wife. Even if you're able to ship them off to a brilliant Sunday school on a Sunday morning. Even then, you are responsible. Which brings me to helping out at Sunday school. Now, given that most of you, most of you here, not all, but most here will have your own children in the future. Given that, it makes a great deal of sense to practice on other people's children first. It just does. Learn and make mistakes with other people's children before you're responsible and answer to God for your own. Simple. I mean... Do the math, as they say. Look, obviously that applies to women as much as men, but historically, for, for whatever reason, men have been slightly more reluctant to, to get involved with Sunday school. That's crazy. One day you'll be responsible before God, probably for your own children. So learn how to do it now. Okay, now, what should we do in the light of this? Well, there's a number of practical things we've mentioned already, but those of us who had parents who sought to love and care for us, as we said with the fifth commandment, thank them. Thank them. Take them for lunch. Visit them, write to them, call them. Thank them. Honor them. Those with parents who failed or hurt you, well, thank God that he is not like that. Pray for grace to forgive, to love, well, your enemies, perhaps. Pray, too, that you would do a better job with your own godchildren, with your nieces and nephews, and perhaps later with your own kids. Children and parents. Secondly, the final of the three relationships which Paul addresses is slaves and masters. What does spirit-filled living look like in the realm of work? That's really the issue that's being addressed here. What does spirit-filled living look like when you get to the realm of work? How are you supposed to live? Now, I want to tackle these verses in two sections. The first will be much briefer, which is uh, apologetics. Uh, look, by instructing slaves to obey their masters, is the Bible endorsing slavery, as some of the new atheists claim? That's the first thing I want to look at. And then secondly, instruction. What can we learn as we seek to honor God in the way that we carry out our work? That's how we'll look at it. So firstly, apologetics. Now, verses like um, Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, are ripped out of context and used by writers like Daniel Dennett to claim the Bible endorses slavery. It's a wicked book. Now, there is a huge amount that could be said here. And uh, I did a, a whole heap of reading and preparing for this. I'm not actually going to go through it all now. But if you find that this is an issue that your friends come at you with, do come and chat to me. I'd love to send you some, uh, some things that I think are helpful on it. I just want to make one point tonight. And that's the point that is hinted at here in Ephesians 6. And that is this. It is true the Bible did not call for slavery to be made illegal. 
What it did was make slavery unthinkable. In other words, the apostles didn't seek to put out the fire of slavery. Instead, they denied it any fuel. Okay, what do I mean by that? Look, slavery is a massive institution. At this point in the Roman Empire, probably a third of the citizens of Rome itself and something similar in the rest of the empire are slaves. It's just an enormous thing. And it would just be inconceivable to say slavery should end. This tiny group of a few thousand Christians. What? Who? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Paul does say the slave trade, 1 Timothy 1, utterly wicked utterly wicked you cannot be a Christian and be involved in that but slavery itself is just so all-encompassing and so broad it would have been pointless to, to call for an end to the to slavery at this point so what Paul and the other apostles did was to challenge the prejudices and the assumptions that made slavery possible in the first place you see the Bible changed the attitudes of Western culture in particular in Britain uh, and later on in the in America not by confronting slavery but by confronting the way we view other people, full stop. Loving neighbor, valuing the poor, accepting the other, viewing people as made in the image of God, viewing people as worthy of the Lord Jesus dying for them, as indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as saved by a God who became a slave for us, Philippians 2 verse 7. And over time, as Christianity grew and influenced the morality of wider culture, those fundamental changes in the way that we should view other people, they just made slavery seem utterly unconscionable to the whole culture. Now, where do you see that here? Well, in Ephesians 6, Paul does something we barely noticed, but that would have been utterly revolutionary back then. He addresses slaves as morally responsible beings. He elevates them to the status of equal with their masters as reasonable, responsible humans. I don't think we realize how radical that was. Every commentary on slaves at the time, any work by any great writer that addressed the issue of slavery, addressed masters and their responsibilities and their rights. Nothing would address a slave, but Paul does. He addresses them as equal. He puts them all on an equal footing before God, who is the master of both. Those are revolutionary things to do in ancient Rome. And they sow the seeds of the destruction of slavery itself. Okay, that's apologetics. And as I say, do ask me afterwards if you've got more questions on that. But let's spend uh, the rest of our time thinking about the instruction for workers. Because slavery was hugely broad back then. Uh, what he writes covered um, employees and employers too, to be perfectly honest. It applies to the situation of work that most of us find ourselves in as we sell whatever it is, 40 hours of our week, of ourselves for 40 hours of the week and give somebody else rights over us, like bond servants in some ways. Now, some of us don't struggle to translate from tyrannical slave masters to our bosses. Not, my, not me, before you think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but all of us can learn from what is taught. Uh, four things, radical obedience... Radical standard of work, radical motivation, and radical equality. Radical obedience, radical standard of work, radical motivation, radical equality. Firstly, there's radical obedience. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey. 
Now, an employment contract can tell you to do that. It sets out your obligations. It can explain the structure of the company and outline who has the right to, to tell you to do stuff and what particular things they can and cannot require of you during the working week. But it cannot impact on the attitude of your heart. No employment contract can do that. But that's what Paul addresses. Employees are not only to obey those over them, they're to do so with respect, with fear, recognizing the authority that the boss has, and with sincerity of heart. The crucial step comes next, just as you would obey Christ. In fact, in all three of these verses with instructions to slaves, it repeats the point that you are to see yourself as working for Christ and not an earthly boss. We've just seen it in verse 5. Verse 6, as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Again and again he makes that point. In other words, it does not matter if your boss is as incompetent as David Brent from the office or learned his management skills from Genghis Khan. It makes no difference. You are to show them the same respect you would show them if they were the Lord Jesus. Now, do you see how radical that is? He's saying, look, if you're a Christian and you were to turn up at work tomorrow and uh, director comes in and says, look, uh, we've, we've sacked your boss, and instead we're employing the Lord Jesus to, to take over the, the sales team in the London office. It should make no difference to how much respect you show your boss at work. Because you're already working, if you're a Christian, as for the Lord. You should always have approached work that way. See how radical that is? Firstly, a radical obedience secondly a radical standard of work verse 6 continues to explore what it means to be a slave of Christ rather than a slave of a human master obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart there was a survey done by a group called the nudge team they're basically working out how 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 do people really work how do you get people to be more effective and they did a survey about what makes people honest at work and they had um, one of these uh, honesty boxes at a, a refreshment point where it was a stingy company where it wasn't free coffee and, and snacks you had to you had to just pay a little bit into the box and they tried all sorts of different signs to see what would be most effective in getting people to you know pony up their hard-earned cash and and to pay for what they were using they had uh, threats they had things that were appeals to people's better nature encouragements they had promises of what useful things the money would achieve but you know what was the most effective sign it was this one (laughs) genuinely that was the most effective sign we behave differently when we know someone's watching us it's just something fundamental in our psyche but for a Christian that's not how we should behave anymore that's a bit eerie let's take that off now (laughs) it's starting to freak me out Our attitude at work, if we're Christians, should be no different whether our boss is in the office or whether she's away on holiday. No different at all. Because we should not be motivated by a desire to win the approval of our boss for her to think better of us or to avoid the punishments that he might bring upon us. We work as if for Christ. And he is never out of office. 
He always sees. So I guess it does ask me, do I get in a little bit later if I know the boss is away this week? Do I put in just a little bit more effort when I know the line manager is going to be reviewing what I've done or the head is going to be observing the lesson? Do I speak about my boss behind their back in a way I would never speak to their face? Work as if for Christ. doesn't matter whether the eyes of your boss are on you because the eyes of the Lord Jesus, who is your true boss, are always there and always watching. Now, if that's a little bit oppressive, actually, we get an encouragement next, radical motivation. What motivates you at work? Well, verse 7 to 8, we're told what should motivate us. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you, whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Do you think you're paid enough? Two-thirds of people in surveys, roughly two-thirds in most of the surveys say, no, I'm amazed it's that, it's that low. <laughs> I, mean, I'm just, I find it staggering that... Um, Everybody seems to think they're underpaid, but only two-thirds of people, but a good two-thirds of people always say, yeah, I'm not paid well enough. The other thing the surveys always show is that people who don't think they're well paid are always demotivated at work. Always demotivated. I remember one Christmas um, at work before when I was a lawyer, and the partners had made record profits that year. And we were given a letter, all the employees, uh, saying that as a mark of their gratitude, they were giving us a gift. And what the gift was, was a tiny one-person portion-sized bottle of champagne. A plastic bottle with a plastic cap. They had made a fortune, and that is what they gave us. And I have to say, it, it killed motivation. The next time in January, and the boss said, you're just going to have to work through the night, you just thought, yay, will I get a plastic bottle of champagne? It... it it just does that to you. When you don't think you're valued, when you don't think you're properly rewarded, you lose your motivation. But here we have the promise that the Lord will reward each one of us whatever good we do. He will reward us properly for our work. I think the focus here is probably less on the quality of the reports you wrote or the bridges you designed, but more about the honesty with which you conducted yourself, the way you treated your co-workers, the kindness you showed to those beneath you, the respectfulness you showed to the unreasonable people above you. The Lord Jesus sees everything, but wonderfully he sees to reward. Nothing is unseen and nothing will go unrewarded before your heavenly father. Radical work, radical obedience, a radical standard of work, radical motivation, and lastly, radical equality as he finally turns to masters. Again, as with husbands and as with parents, there's nothing about exercising your authority. Instead, the focus is on how you treat those who are under your authority. Verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. What does he mean by in the same way? 
Now, at the very, very least, it must mean, uh, just as workers should engage in their tasks in a way that's governed by the knowledge that they are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, so too masters, that's bosses, line managers, overseers, partners, directors, your treatment of those under you should be governed by the fact that you know that you have the Lord above you. Both workers and bosses have a Lord God above them. At the very least, that's what it must mean. But I wonder, I wonder too if it doesn't mean something slightly more radical than that. If the focus of the first verses was, work as if Jesus is your boss, and now he says, in the same way, if you are a boss, that should be your attitude, treat your slaves in the same way, might it be that he's saying, manage as if Jesus was your employee? I mean, how would you treat Jesus if he came to work for you? Sends in his CV, odd CV, carpentry and saving the world. As, you know. <laughs> but imagine if, how would you treat him? Can you imagine mistreating the Lord Jesus, underpaying him? Well, he didn't ask for a raise. Taking him for granted. Well, it's his job. How about threatening or beating him? Now do you see why to embrace Christianity completely destroys the foundation on which slavery is built? Okay, what does it look like if you get this attitude of treating people rightly since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him? I wonder if you saw the, uh, the article about Richard Sounds this weekend. It was in the, the Saturday Guardian. Julian Rich founded the firm in 1978. This is him. And uh, he was aged just 19 when he founded it. He had an AGM on Tuesday, actually just up at the Salvation Army Hall. And he announced that uh, they'd had, um, uh, he'd sold a whole load of shares. And he announced he was transferring 60% of his shares into a trust to be owned by the company's employees. Which is pretty impressive. What's even more impressive is that from his own profits, the other 40% of the shares that he sold, he took a third of the profits and distributed it around all the employees, a thousand pounds per person per year they'd worked for him. And having handed over the day-to-day -day running of Richer Sounds now to, to people that he's trained up, he spends his time campaigning for more ethical standards in business and enter zero hours contract and all that. But the odd thing is, as a younger man, he wasn't like that. As a younger man, he was all about making money and squeezing every drop out, and he did not particularly treat his employees well. He, he writes, I had jets, helicopters, cars, all, I had two of all of them, because one just wasn't enough. I mean, why, what do you do with two helicopters? But interestingly, it says, by contrast, these days he is content playing ping pong with Rosie, his wife of 35 years, and having days out in Whitby. That's quite a, a change. I mean, what happened to the guy? I'll tell you what happened to him. Tucked away in the very last paragraph of the Guardian article, he got baptized at the age of 47, having become a Christian. And his faith in Jesus didn't change just how he spent his Sundays, but how he spent his money and how he treats his employees and runs his business. Now, of course, being the guardian, it has to add, but it was also probably influenced by the fact that he had a socialist housemaster at boarding school. You know, can't give Christians the credit. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I'm not being, don't, I bought the Guardian, you can't tell me off. Um, the, <laughs> there's a man whose life has been transformed by the Lord Jesus and whose attitude at work is now shaped by Ephesians 6. He treats his employees in the same way. Ever since chapter 4, verse 1, we've been working out the implications of what Paul writes there. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. To go from spiritually dead, deserving of punishment, cut off from God, and to be forgiven, made alive, adopted as God's children, to know that the Lord God himself became a slave and poured himself out in service of us, even to death. When you know that, when you own it for yourself, it changes you. It has to. It changes everything. Now, these are profoundly practical verses we've been looking at tonight because the gospel affects us in the most basic ways in our relationships with family, friends, and at work. The gospel impacts all of life. 